1: My friend Meg was successfully treated for thyroid cancer in her 30s, but for the next 10 years, she faced every annual checkup braced for bad news. When she arrived for lunch after her latest visit to the doctor, she was wearing such a worried expression, we were prepared for the worst. But here's what her doctor had said. Meg, I think you've dodged a bullet. I don't think that cancer is coming back good news, and yet the look on her face was not joy or even relief. I think Meg had been living year to year. Now, suddenly facing the prospect that she might go on living a long time, she felt completely unprepared. This is what she said. What am I going to do for 40 years? It's the question of the age and the question of our age. My generation is the first to get a heads-up that, as one expert put it, our working lives could well be exceeded by the years we go on living. But what are we going to do? The demographics of aging have been improving, adding decades to what we commonly know as midlife. But as Laura Karstensen, Ph.D., director of the Stanford Center on Longevity, says, the culture hasn't had time to catch up, The enormity of this hasn't hit people. It's starting to. At lunch that day with Meg, I witnessed a moment of impact. Everyone is talking about reinvention. The president used the word reinvention nine times in a State of the Union address. The Harvard Business Review devoted an entire issue to reinvention. Something profound is happening. But as a woman in my AARP online chat room aptly put it, I'm ready to reinvent myself. Any ideas about what I should reinvent myself into? Nothing is lining up in front of me. It's a common sentiment. I often hear it described as a yearning for something more. It's a feeling I could personally relate to, being ready for something, but a something you can't quite define. Our vocabulary hasn't caught up. What does midlife mean? It used to be the beginning of a long glide path into retirement, which many of us still eagerly look forward to. As I write, the morning paper reports that two million of us will be retiring in the coming year. Maybe you will be one of those newly minted retirees. But since you are reading this book, you've probably decided your retirement will be different. Unlike previous generations who retired from something, My generation hopes to retire to something else. Midlife keeps on going and going. Even before the economy went into recession, the majority of baby boomers surveyed by AARP reported they expected to keep on working in retirement, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. Retirement is a word with new meaning, no longer a door-marked exit. Think instead of a door that swings on a hinge, moving us forward into something new.
0: Jane Pauley was the co-host of Today from 1976 to 1989. She anchored Dateline for 11 years and was the host of her own daytime program, The Jane Pauley Show. She's the author of a 2004 memoir, Skywriting: A Life Out of the Blue. In collaboration with the AARP, she created the award-winning series, Life Reimagined Today, which has appeared on Today since 2012. Her new book is Your Life Calling, Reimagining the Rest of Your Life. Thank you for joining me, Jane.
1: Well, it's a privilege. Thank you.
0: Jane, this book is such a great testament to the power of story as a way of defining ourselves and our lives and redefining ourselves and our lives.
1: I am lucky that at the age of 63, uh, I I finally found what uh, uh, I used to derisively uh, refer to as a passion because I never had one, never had a hobby. Um, I tried to cultivate some because I always felt embarrassed that I didn't have a good answer to the question about outside interests. But talking about these stories, I have heard myself sounding like a woman speaking with passion and I realized that this is my passion telling stories to purpose a particular kind of story I'm a, a, a journalist for almost 40 years and, and all journalists are storytellers but I think I was more storyteller than reporter and here I have found in my uh, latest iteration of my broadcast career story and i wasn't aware of of the power of story for most of the time i was doing stories for dateline or doing interviews and connecting dots and you know, i was aware of that but this uh, book has been a really rich uh, eye-opening experience for me how many stories i have to tell and finding other people's stories and Finding stories in their stories, as I interview people, has been well. I now I, my hobby. Maybe it's not a passion, but I I think my hobby is interpersonal gardening.
0: <laughs> what a great way of putting it! You know, as I read this book, what I found really fascinating was it's two things at once, and you talk about the union of opposites a lot in this book, and this book is a perfect example of what you talk about in that it's a book of deep introspection, of you looking back at your career with twenty twenty hindsight You're looking at it at the present. You even look into the future, which is really interesting. But it's also a book of inspiration. So you have memoir and biography going back and forth. And you use one to bolster the other, to illuminate the other, to shadow the other. I'd like you to just talk about the experience of putting those two different forms together.
1: You know, I'm not an artist. uh, and, And I know having interviewed uh artists and musicians how difficult it is for them to talk about how they do their art so hearing you describe what I do I'm <laughs> kind of thinking really <laughs> <laughs> but I know exactly you yeah I see what you mean I know what you mean uh but I I I I do it pretty much intuitively I was um you know, I'm on book tour and I'm introduced a lot and in St. Louis, a woman uh, explained to the crowd that January was named after the Roman god Janus, the two-faced god, who had the ability to look into the past and the ability to look into the future, which is why the Roman calendar beginning with January was about change and time and transition and the important connection between the past and the future. I. I will often describe myself as so futuristic, I, I, I like those tests you take online, I'm kind of a sucker for those. And I once tested in the 99th percentile of futuristic, which made me wonder if I was even here at all. But the telling of these stories and putting it into a book for, a, once again, for a reason. I want people to think about the future. We're going to be living the rest of our lives there together. Uh, in the future, but in this exercise, which is all about uh, the future, how how I've wo- woven back into my own life and uh, and you know pulled up threads and uh, uh, to see how you know they 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 loop into something that anchors me in, into a future that you otherwise can't can't see. So as I interview people f- for the book. It's very important uh, that I do a, some exploration of their background. may not always make the the piece that we do on television, which is so short and some of this exploration is probably just being done for my own you know <laughs> amusement um, but it's it, it, it sounds trite, but it's an easy way to visualize it connecting the dots and Most of us don't connect our own dots. I mean, we live busy lives. We've got things to do. And, um, you know, unless you are are, are in therapy or something, uh, you know, who's going to do that until I sit down with you, interview you, and then ask you, have you ever noticed that? Have you ever thought about when, you know, your father did this and you maybe were like him? And I'll see little light bulbs go off over people's heads. I swear I do. Where I tell them something, they they see it, they get it, um, and now that they they have this narrative, they see their own story in a powerful new way. Um, I could I could go on forever. There's a woman I met in uh, St. Louis. Um, this experience of going through uh, the the experience of being on book tour has been been fascinating because I've met a lot of people who seem to know me well, you know, because, you know, we go by the Today Show. And it's, it's very nice, and, and I get these haiku versions of their life story, or they ask a question, or both. There was a, oh, an elderly woman who strode over to me, and she strode over to me with her cane. Her name was Gladys. And Gladys told me, she had something to tell me, she had redecorated. Uh, she had decided to go modern, instead of classical, which I loved, 96 years old. Her question was, how would someone over 90 reinvent herself? Well, I punted and didn't have a good answer for her. I told her probably something she could be thinking about tomorrow, but I couldn't stop thinking about Gladys. She had arrived They were in the front row together with two other women about the same age. One of them was in a wheelchair, very quiet woman and I thought I wonder how many times a month Gladys gets those two women out on a cold Saturday night in St. Louis to hear an author lecture and I thought Gladys is a woman with a gift for living if you met her you'd know exactly she surely does but then I went on and I thought Gladys has a gift for living and a gift for sharing that gift, and I wanted to go back and tell Gladys, because many times I think we have this sense of of something missing, or there's nothing special that, you know, we do, because the thing that you do that might be most special just comes naturally, and you don't notice it. Gladys knows she has a gift for living, but if I told her you have a gift for sharing, that gift for living. It would give structure to her activities. Let's, let's go out on Friday. Let's see who's coming to St. Louis. Let's, let's go have some dinner before. You know, let's go. And this, what a blessing it would be to have a Gladys as a friend. I could see myself in my 90s. I need a Gladys. I will definitely not be a Gladys, but I will want one. But if I don't tell Gladys this little revelation, then she might just go on having this gift for living and sharing it, but not owning its, the, the meaning that it gives her life, that it defines why Gladys has a life that matters to herself and to other people. So that's what I do.
0: Well, you know, this speaks to two uh, big parts of your book. One is that we don't recognize our own strengths and our weaknesses. It's hard to tell them apart. It's, it's as one of one of my friends put it, it's like asking a fish about water. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other uh, thing that this experience speaks to is the power of naming. And you, you talk about this, that how important it is to understand what our strengths are and to put a name to those strengths, which gives us somewhere uh, a linchpin to march forward from
1: um I'm, i was nodding vigorously when you were talking and you know once again the the best way to illustrate this point is in another story uh my my sister had a career in business was pre- one of the first women to uh head a global technology manufacturing company uh with a senior staff of men um all named Bob as it happened. They were known as Bob, 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 Bob and Ann, which I didn't need to tell you, but it's just too much fun. My sister was once described this way, "Anne Pauly is like an irreplaceable crystal in a priceless chandelier. This was in a corporate, you know, an executive setting. Prose like that you don't normally expect. It made me proud when she told me that story, though I hadn't a clue what he meant. (laughs) She knew. She knew what he meant. She said that it was a skill she knew she had, but she didn't know it was that important or had been noticed. But that she always felt her role in a leadership team was to help others shine. When he compared her to this crystal in a chandelier, it enabled her to own this this talent and to she said it was affirming and it was validating and gave her the confidence to deploy it with with more confidence and then she turns her her light on her little sister and she told me that I have a gift for helping people see themselves in powerful and positive new ways which was a new way of seeing myself. So I guess she has that gift, too. But I knew what she meant. It, it described the stories that I always thought I did best and wanted most to do. Uh, they weren't necessarily the stories that NBC wanted me to do, but uh, you know, helping people see themselves in positive new ways or see the future in positive and powerful new ways. It's really what the book is about. Now, when my sister told me this, it it wasn't that, and when she told me that, I realized what I had to do, and I wrote a book. Now, I was already doing these stories on the Today Show with AARP, the Your Life Calling Stories, Life Reinvented. Um, So she didn't show me the way, but she told me that I was on the right path. And as I go forward in life, reinventing and recycling, as I certainly will, as opportunity and contingency arrive, I think whatever I will be doing, uh, and chances are you won't come back and interview me about it, but whatever it is, it will have something to do with this idea that I have a gift for helping people see themselves in positive new ways, and I can't stop myself from telling them. Well,
0: one of the things I think you do really well in this book is work within the the strictures of a highly competitive, rigidly regimented genre, the self-help genre. But what you do with that is you turn it around and turn it, as I say, into a memoir and these biographies and you weave your story in through these other stories and Uh, what I like is that kind of that mix, that nettish mix where you will take us from an episode of what has happened to you to an episode of what has happened to one of the people in the book. And, And I think one of the things that powers this book through and through is the power of aphorism. You'll come up with these really pithy little sayings and you use them like a Um, almost like Bruce Springsteen uses a chorus.
1: Oh my, like what? (laughs) Like what? uh, Tell me one.
0: You uh, you bring up the the Jobs (laughs) quote. Uh, You use that a couple of times. You can see the dots connecting in the past. You just have to trust that they're going to be there in the future. You come back and forth to the concept of identifying your strengths, identifying your weaknesses. Many people can't distinguish between the parts of the work that cause them stress and the parts they actually enjoy. That's uh, Jerry Lehner You had say, uh, self discovery is not the prerequisite for a reinvention; it's the payoff.
1: You know, uh, the first part that you read was uh, from my my laptop. I've collected uh, quotes like like in research uh, from other people for many years. So, uh, the author of of flow, the um, Mikhaily Shiksamali Shiksamali. Oh help me! Uh, <laughs> I, is the author of that? You know, people who don't, people often, if not most always, uh, have difficulty identifying the parts of their work that cause them stress and the part that they they enjoy. We don't think about those things, so that's not original uh, to me. The other part was original, and remind me what. I've already...
0: Uh, I've, self-discovery is not... Yes, that
1: it. is, that is a real, is original with me, uh, that, and it was uh, um, a 180 from the predicate of my memoir, Skywriting, Skywriting, A Life Out of the Blue, I uh, wrote, I wrote 10 years ago, and because I've always thought of myself as so future-oriented, and because I don't remember anything, and I wasn't taking notes, if I have... Any archival material it's because I married an archival person, and he kept it. Uh, but I wrote that memoir on assumption that a journey of self discovery going back would somehow inform my future. I was like many of us, you know struggling with well, what is that something more what you know I, I, I had that yearning that I describe. So, famous
0: song lyric is that all there is? Is that all there is?
1: So, but but I had the sense that if I did, that I needed this journey of discovery in order to, to um, uh for to illuminate the path forward. Now I've come ten years later uh, to believe that uh, self discovery is is the reward, not 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 the predicate. In fact. We, we can so overthink this and analyze ourselves and do what somebody you know, called the, you know, the big soul search. When my sister gave me that wonderful gift of telling me I had the power of helping people see themselves in positive new ways, I was already on the path. All she did was tell me, you know, you're doing what you ought to be doing. You're doing what you're, what you're really good at. So, you know, the, it's a little counterintuitive that the doing reveals why you should be doing it. Uh, it's not very helpful in self-help book terms because, um, you know, my book really isn't a how-to. What it is is a show-and-tell. It's using all those stories that you've described. Uh, dozens of other people and my own story in the hopes that a reader will find something that resonates, something that sparks and inspires a new thought or reinforces something that they had long felt or help them recognize that they don't need to turn themselves inside and out and have an extreme makeover. They just need to, like the chapter that I call Something Different. Mm-hmm. This is about uh, a professional golfer. Uh, the chapter isn't written only for people who are professional golfers. It was...
0: Oh, I loved his story. He's, I
1: love he's, his story, too. I found it <laughs> in the sports page. But the idea is that here was a guy who was a journeyman golfer. He was good enough for a PGA card. So, I mean, he's <laughs> really good, but not making the money to support a family and ultimately stops beating his head against the wall and and, and, and stops the perseverance for which he was most famous, he gets an opportunity to try again. And I tell the story in the book about how that comes about. But his wife says to him, this time, if you're going to try it again, do something different. And she's so it's not uh, a a big, uh, you know, go out and do something entirely different than you're currently doing. But if you're a teacher, if you're a lawyer, if you're an accountant, it doesn't mean go find a different career. This chapter is just the idea that could you imagine going to your classroom next month and doing something different, that might make you more energized as the teacher that you were when you started. Do something different. Stop stop doing it the same way. Do something, you know, small or big, uh, but just think about a way to do something different. So what he did, he, um, he, he, he got real serious about fitness in a new way. He got a new... Uh, coach. It always amuses me that these professional athletes have coaches. They all c- keep having coaches, um, and and he, he sought counseling so that he could kind of for a golfer you can imagine the torment of the little voices you know that you know when oh, you're yeah. under pressure. Anyway, he he did a few things different, and in his fifties, won two seniors the Champions Tours tournaments back to back which is really unusual, and is playing better golf in his 50s than he ever played before because he took his wife's advice. Well, this time, do something different. I love that.
0: Well, one of the things I think that uh, this book does is it gives us a, your a sense of your vision of the future, which, as you put it, isn't futuristic, and I really like that idea that— we all think when we hear the word future you kind of want to see something like a cross between Star Wars and 2001 and our Blade Runner, which is it's 2014, where's our Blade Runner world? It's not, it's not here. The future is very much like the present.
1: Very much, though it's said that um, in, in uh, uh, the test subjects in, in MRIs, where they get brain, brain scan images, if asked to think about themselves in the future a person's brain lights up in almost identical pattern as when they're asked to think about a stranger
0: i in- thought that was so interesting
1: <laughs> it's so it, so what that is means is that is that we can't identify with ourselves in the future It's a very strong present bias we you know there are experts who could who could go on about that but as the result is that we we don't allow for we will be having different contingencies and opportunities we will feel better we might feel worse there um you know the the factors the opportunities the constraints the the freedom of being in your 50s when your children are grown um you know, we're speaking in San Francisco. Uh, My grown children, uh, I'm not encumbered by their needs. They do not know I am here. (laughs) Where when I was a younger woman in my 40s, 30s, traveling to, you know, really glamorous destinations that NBC News would send me to, and I never wanted to go because I had responsibilities at home, that tug and pull, that conflict. I don't feel that conflict anymore. I am free to come to San Francisco um, to report a story, to talk about my book. Um, So that's an opportunity I would never have imagined now, five years from now, maybe there won't be that excitement in my voice. Maybe I'm reporting, well, I've I've had to... um, I've had to trim my sails a bit. You know, I wasn't expecting that. T- who knows? But I believe I, I've discovered something about myself after I wrote the book because it is a book of stories. I keep hearing stories. <laughs> you know, people keep telling me stories. Uh, and I was never able to explain my own uh, a facility for or affinity for reinvention though people would ask me you know have you noticed any themes you know and I say, well people who have volunteered a lot seem to be you know they come to transitions more easily people who are learners um, you know can learn something new that enables them to do something uh, like what they're doing only more so Um, people who have lots of hobbies and outside interests we've already established that that wasn't me but I was sent a story about a guy who ran a big food company, You've heard, a brand name you've heard of, was diagnosed with a, uh, an incurable but slow cancer, and he thought what he needed was a blank calendar, so he resigned. Res- big mistake. He just <laughs> fell into depression. Decided maybe, well, what would he do? He could teach a class. And he proposed at a college that he would teach a course in leadership with his background. That would be obvious. As he did his preparation, he got more interested in happiness and has has taught a course in happiness at this college, a very popular course. And as he described the skills of happy people, I recognized myself. Um... And I I can't quote him exactly, but it has something to do with um, uh, accepting the past, uh, the challenges or opportunities, processing them and moving on, learning from them perhaps, and then moving on. Um, And looking toward the future with some confidence that whatever comes, good or bad, I will probably have the ability to adapt to it. That's me. And then he kind of sums it up in a way that I really liked. Uh, Doug Smith is his name. Give him credit. Uh, That a person who is at peace with the past and confident, as I've described, with the future uh, is able to live in the present where he says joy is most often found. Now, when I read that, I thought I do that thing with the past. Uh that's pretty much how I see the future. I'm I'm not a Pollyanna. I, I recognize, you know, the future has good and bad stuff in store for me, and I don't know what. But I do have this kind of confidence that I'll work with it. I'll work with it. But here I am talking to you about my book, writing this book, and I realize I maybe am a person now who is living in the present where joy is found. 63 years old, and I'm finally living in the present. Uh, I don't talk about joy that much. I don't talk about dreams that much. I'm pretty, I try to have feet on the ground, but I could relate to that. So after I wrote my book, I was able to recognize in someone else's story. But that's how it works. Someone tells a story, and it resonated as, well, that, that's relevant to me. That's what I hope my book does for other people, is they realize in someone else's story that that describes me.
0: Well, that's, I think, uh, one of the things that reading makes really possible, I think, more than any other medium, because when you're reading the words, you're actually we are these people as we are you were all the people and all the stories, and I think you do something very interesting with this book. We can see the influence of 40 years of television news in the prose and in your manner of storytelling, the way you play with time in the storytelling, the way you'll introduce a character here early on in the book, then bring them back later on for, you know, the final revelation of the suspects, so to speak. I'd like you to just talk about, as you were putting this together, did you consciously think of the TV scripts that you had prepared, that went with these stories when you put them on TV? Did you refer to them or did the, that kind of uh, flow just come out of the way you were dealing with the prose?
1: You know, it'd be such a happy thing if, if I, if my answer was yes, you're exactly right, but no, I, I just, I just think that way, uh, which makes it very difficult. I, it's hard for me to write speeches uh, because it's sort of linear, and I'm supposed to have a, a message, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and, you know, a summing up, and, you know, the reason. I, I just get wind me up and let me talk, and the best stuff I have to share with you will come out, but not from the part of my brain that goes back and says, well, I have learned from experience and storytelling that I, don't, I, I wish... Uh, it was as easy as that actually it is easier than that because when I just let myself write or speak intuitively uh it it it, it tends to spill out in in that way and I will it's kind of exciting when you know I'll be writing a, a chapter and realize here is exactly the moment where I I need to tell people what became of Meg <laughs> you know <laughs> I need to they will be so surprised um Uh, that you know so but the story will tell itself I will have the availability of oh remember when it was like and then I'll pull out a story and and um, I mean sometimes I'll consciously save a reveal because I know people like reveals uh, but for the most part it says my fingers are typing and telling a story about somebody you know, it's like, it's like, you know, another idea raises its head and says, no, 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 wait, you know, this idea works. Put this, say this, because it amplifies the, 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 the point I'm, I'm getting to. Um, it, it gives it texture and nuance, and that's what life is all about. It's not simple. It's pretty, comp- I, one of my favorite parts of, of, of the book is this chapter about my my mother, Mm-hmm. One of the, the the aphorisms, I guess, if, is, is a, a proficiency is not the same as a passion. And my mother was uh, a very, very good seamstress. She was the kind that liked the Vogue pattern pieces, 52 pieces spread out on the floor and, you know, cutting on the bias. And, I mean, she was really quite good at that and seemed very much in her element. That was when she was in flow, when my mother was sewing at her machine. But the story begins uh, how, as First Lady, Hillary Clinton helped me see my mother in a new way. It was an introduction of an Arts in the Schools program. The First Lady was presiding and extemporaneously introducing people on the stage, and I was one of half a dozen people. When she came to me, she began... She's the daughter of a musician. And I was a little embarrassed because someone maybe had given her wrong advice. My mother was a housewife. And it suddenly hit me. I almost cried. A friend in the audience later asked, what happened to you up there? I realized for the first time in my life, I am the daughter of a musician. My mother was the organist at church. Every Sunday of my life, I saw her sitting at the organ. At, you know, at choir practice on Thursdays, I'm playing at her feet. She's, you know, the stocking feet, the big jumbo keys on the floor. You know, her favorite was Bach. She was a very mild, t- shy woman. You know, but, you know, at, 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 you know ta-da, chord, the, the congregation would arise. And I never saw my mother as a musician. So that night, I called my sister, um... And I, and my sister says <laughs> two idiot Paulies, who was Hillary talking about? <laughs> Neither one of us had seen our mother as as a musician. But as I tell the reason I tell the story this way is that if we don't all always recognize ourselves, sometimes the people nearest us know us better. They see the 360-degree version of ourselves, Uh, the people who know Gladys from St. Louis, they know she has a gift for living, whether she's ever thought of it herself. So my mother, you know, the daughters who knew her best, wait a minute, we didn't see a musician. So can you really trust the people who know you that well? Your own family? We were blind. But wait. I thought about it a little more. Did my mother think of herself as a musician or, and I suspect this is the case, was the organ just another one of those complicated pieces of machinery or I think she enjoyed mastering difficult things.
0: You described something. I love the compu- comptotrom-
1: comptometer.
0: Comptometer. I met a woman. I want one of those. Yeah. My,
1: I met a woman the other day that said, my mother oh, you, know, you know, used the comptom- comptometer too. A comptometer uh, was a machine invented in the 19th century, but imagine a typewriter with even more rows of keys, but they're all numbers. It's an adding machine really complicated, and and uh, my mother was the accounts payable department at the company where she met my father, and of course, as soon as she got married, she quit working, but she kept the comptometer, and she would was the accounts payable department in our family, and you would see her balancing the checkbook. On the she comptometer? Could, yes, with her, with her uh, left hand, and she's a right-handed person, with her left hand, she's doing this the numbers, ka with the numbers, and she would follow a column of numbers and, you know, without even looking, her, her fingers are hitting the right buttons and, you know, it's like typing without looking at the keys. So mastering this this deviously complicated uh, machine was a lot like her pattern pieces, her Vogue pattern pieces, 52 pieces to make a dress or a suit. And the organ is you know, they come in multi-rows. The organ that she played had two rows of keys, one third on the floor, the, the, the feet played, then pulling stops and pushing stops. I think my mother didn't think of herself as a musician. I believe she had a passion for mastering complicated things that would take years of, of practice. My sister has some of this
0: too. She was a meta-musician in a sense she would she would her, she played the ability to play complicated things
1: mm-hmm. so that i'm not sure it was so much about the music i think also there was a, an element of service being a church musician was how she contributed something at church uh, but coming full circle i don't know that my mother thought of herself as a musician even though she was highly proficient but a pr- proficiency is not the same as a passion
0: and that's I think one of the really interesting aspects of this book there are so many great kind of I think lessons and, and you bring us to a, a number of conclusions some of them uh, ex- mutually exclusive which I really like this idea of you kind of getting us to embrace opposites. And there's there's one point, I guess, uh, Hermina Ibarra, uh, w- what she says I thought was really interesting, which is what people get wrong about reinvention is that they think they have to be ready. Instead, change makes ready. And I thought that was such an interesting observation. It, it's you have to it takes a little while to wrap your brain around it, and I think that's the point.
1: Well, the brain likes novelty for one thing. I I tell a story about my friend Anne at NBC, one of my closest friends, and um, I have inflicted my advice on Anne uh, for decades. I'm the change agent. Anne does not embrace the word change with it. she likes to stay the same as. And it talks a lot about getting her ducks in a row, and my sister teased her once. Isn't the point getting your ducks in the water? (laughs) But Anne is very methodical about things, and um, you know she will approach change in her way when she's ready. Now, at NBC, uh, there have been many rounds of of buyouts. Uh, that Anne has been offered, you know, they're going to be, you know, reductions, uh, take the buyout or take your chances, basically. So Anne has watched this process. In other words, her brain is seeing change happen all around her. And seeing change happen over the period of years has made Anne ready for change. She told me, I, this, this, this isn't a big announcement, and Anne has now decided to. No, she's still at NBC. But she. the big announcement is that Anne tells me, I will never embrace change the way you do, Jane, but I'm becoming ready to accept it. And I think it's because the brain has seen change happen, and it has prepared her for change. It's the reason our New Year's resolutions fail because we think we have to be ready to stop smoking, for instance. We have to be ready uh, to start an exercise regimen. The opposite is true. When the brain sees that you are a non-smoker, you're re- you, you are you are be- a non-smoker. Your brain is, okay, I get it now. You know, the brain sees you, uh, you know, putting on tights every morning and running out to, 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 to jog. Uh, and now it says, I guess I see us, we're into fitness now. So change makes, you know, makes you ready to change. Um, I have uh, uh, a New Year's resolution uh, from 2013 that I started, my, my New Year's resolution was a little late it was to say yes more. And I write about that in the book. Book is done and it's a couple months before the beginning of this new year. And I'm thinking about a new year's resolution and anticipating that I will have more success with my new year's resolution if I get some momentum So before January of 2014, my New Year's resolution was to say yes to more new things. And I could cite some examples of what I mean. They're little things. Uh, But uh, like when a friend invited me to join this Shakespeare reading. He, He invites a mob of friends to his apartment and he assigns roles to some Shakespeare play. This is not something I have ever done or ever thought of doing, but in November I was the princess in Love's Labor's Lost. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> in the living room. I mean, it was just, you know, reading the book, and we were all bad. There were, there were some ringers, but most of us were, were not actors. The next morning I, I just had this sense of, of accomplishment. I had tried something new. I liked it, and I wanted more of that. I wanted more of that.
0: Shakespeare's language rewired your brain.
1: Well, so it's not just going to be, oh, so Jane's into Shakespeare now. It just reinforced the idea. Mm -hmm. Say yes to more new
0: things. So that's 2014. Step step back a, a, a bit. You know, one of the things I think that's really interesting is the way you look at your own life and in this book and the way you describe your own career. And some of this stuff must have been kind of hard for you to write, but when when we read it, there's a real feeling of lightness to your prose. There's a real feeling of lightness when you are talking about this stuff. I remember, you know, uh, everybody's hair was on fire about Deborah Norville, and and then there's this other thing in the your your daytime show and, and go up against Oprah giving out away cars.
1: <laughs> I love my, you know, my daytime show. I had a theme song. I had a warm up guy. I had a I had a makeup room. It did have a star on the door. It did not. But it was like that, just off the studio. Who wouldn't like that setup? Except that it was the hardest thing I ever did. I mean, we would tape six shows a week. That's six shows times seven segments. Uh, it, It just was, it was never never ending, to to finish a hard week on Friday, look at the board for Monday, and realize we don't have a show for Monday. What? You know, I wanted to go home and rest. No. Gotta think, gotta think of, book, and structure a show for Monday. It was so hard, and the the favorite part of my career, and it makes me sad sometimes when I'm introduced, and people are doing the you know, Jane started on the Today Show when she was 25 and Dateline and blah, blah, blah. And they leave out the daytime show. And I don't know if they leave it out for time or because it wasn't a success. It, it was one season and not picked up. So it, 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 about a year before it started, I, when I had decided I would try it, I took my kids aside and I, I, I alerted them, you know, Odds are a little long here. They've heard of Oprah, Um, but I told them that my definition of success was having the courage to say yes,
0: having the courage to try, and
1: that so and on that basis, and perhaps that basis alone, my show was a success because I did have the courage to say yes. I had the courage to try something that. I knew it'd be hard. Uh that and and if it failed it was gonna be a public failure. That's why I want that's why I took my kids aside because I didn't want them to feel bad for me or be embarrassed. And in hindsight I think the best parenting I ever did was to try something hard and fail at it and show my children that you well, you know, it doesn't all your your dreams don't always come true. Um you know, so people this, you know, follow your bliss. You know, well, good luck with that. If if you can find someone to pay you for your bliss, happily ever after for you, you go. You probably aren't reading my book. Reality is, you might get a chance, or you might not ever get your chance uh, to, uh, you know, follow your, you know, your your dreams. But you know, sometimes they fail, and you have to back up and try it again. So showing my kids that, you know, I I. I learned from failure. It makes me p- proud. I, I have a, a, a poster from the Jane Pauley show, and it, it's a lovely picture. I, 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 you know, they say it takes a village, and I, I, it's, I'm an attractive woman in this poster. But when I look at it, it's not out of vanity, because, you know, I know what I look like. It's she was someone who had the courage to try, and she inspires me. And here I am talking in the third person I am the woman in the future that that woman would have regarded as the stranger. And I am looking back at that younger version of myself. saying, way to go, younger Jane. I hope that future Jane uh, remembers uh, that you modeled a quality that, that I admire. And that's you know, saying yes if opportunity comes. And it's the right opportunity. And having the courage to try and maybe f- fail.
0: Samuel Beckett, fail once, fail better. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the key. You know, uh, one of the things I think is, is interesting is there's a whole portion where you inhabit your future self. And I really like that. That prose in that is is rather poetic. It has this kind of a, a floaty feel. And I'm really interested in this idea of how your present self, looking back at your past self, and imagining your past self, again, imagining your future self. This is a kind of an interesting hall of mirrors that I think you get into in this book. But what it does is it allows your readers, to get in those mirrors and get in those stories and pick up some of those reflections. Oh, this, the sandcastle guy who lives in Santa Cruz, and I saw on Christmas Day building a beautiful, welcome, or Merry Christmas sculpture on the sand right beneath the pier. Um, You can pick up a little bit of his story, a little bit of uh, the woman who goes from being a super lawyer uh, su- super legal secretary to being a chocolatier. I mean, there are all these little great stories. We can reflect we off the pieces.
1: Well, you know, I, 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 someone listening is thinking, well, I don't think I need to read that book because I don't want to be a chocolatier. And, and, you know, and how many people are going to make a living uh, being a sand sculptor? Um, there are a few hundred in the world and our Kirk Rademacher happens to be one of them. But the relevance of his story, and this is a, a, a pattern that comes up now and again in, in my stories, is that everything that he does on the beach when he's working in sand, I mean, often it's not working on a beach because they can haul sand anywhere and, and he gets hired to do these things. But he's using his fine arts degree from college, in a way he had never used it before. He had had a career as a project manager at a cabinet-making company in Oakland, a good job, but he wasn't in a good place. He said whenever the phone rang, you know, it, it, it was never anybody saying, the, they, they fit perfectly, they were beautiful, thank you. It was, where are they? They don't fit, something was wrong. Um, personal life was not you know, going well. So one day, on a, just on a whim, He goes for a walk on the beach and builds a sandcastle. And he describes it as it was like the sun rising on all the horizons at once. (laughs) And he knew that beach was going to change him. And then he went back every weekend. He didn't quit his job, but he went back every weekend. and, And he fell into a group of sand carvers. He discovered that there was you could do this for a living? Yeah, if you're really good at it. But he sums up, I I prod him for some advice. And he said, well, if you're really dissatisfied with, with what you're doing, don't quit your job. Just find something that you really enjoy. Maybe it's music or drawing. He loves to draw. He says, maybe it's conversation. And just get more of that in your life. You'll find the balance that you need. His life was out of balance. Barbara Allen, she put, uh, I, 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 I fell off the track of my, uh, my thinking in a mo- for a moment when I was describing that Kirk had taken all the tools of his career as a cabinet maker and you know, the beach was his drafting table.
0: Recombine them and in a different environment. And he used it.
1: He just yes, he was doing everything he always did. He just changed the context, and found, and found happiness. Barbara Chandler Allen started a nonprofit in Philadelphia. She put the same thing this way. She said, "It's like I took threads of everything I'd ever done and wove them together in a new tapestry." She also had a, my favorite quote in the book, probably. She said, I've always been a confident person, but in my 60s, it's reached terrifying proportions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've been speaking with Jane Pauley. Her new book is Your Life Calling, Reimagining the Rest of Your Life. Thank you for joining me, Jane. Rick, thank you.